Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is one of the most experienced administrators the English club game has seen. David Dent was appointed the first full-time secretary of his home club, Carlisle United, in 1960, a post he would hold for 18 years, taken in their brief but unforgettable single-season stay in the old First Division in the mid-70s. In 1978, David became club secretary at Jimmy Hill's forward-thinking Coventry City, a six-year period he looks back on fondly as the pioneer Supreme Hill continued to innovate. Unfortunately for the Sky Blues and their charismatic chairman and investment in NASL clubs Detroit Express and later the Washington Diplomats, brought financial difficulties for both parties, leading to a painful parting of the ways for Coventry and Hill. In 1984, David moved to the Football League, progressing to become the last ever Football League secretary to preside over a 92-club league. In this interview, we talk about his years at Carlisle, the exciting period at Coventry that was ultimately undone by their NASL investment, and the difficulty of steering the Football League through that tumultuous period in 1991 when the Premier League was founded. This is David Dent. I was born in a small village near Appleby in the Eden Valley, just south of Penrith, in 1936. Where is that for anybody not in the UK? Whereabouts in the country is that? It's in Cumbria. That's the north of England, is it? Yes, it is, yes. Were you into football from an early age? Was that your sport? Um, Yes, I was mad keen as a boy. Played at uh, school, junior and um, played for Appleby in the Westmoreland League when I was 16, 17, 18, uh, before I went in for national service. I was called in in uh, December 19, no, January 1958, and uh, demobbed in January 1960. And that's when I joined Carlisle United. And who did you follow as a, as a kid? Were Carlisle your team? Uh, yes, Carlisle were my team. I, I had a soft spot for Chelsea for some reason. And I think the reason was that they had a centre forward 
called Roy Bentley. And I modelled myself as a player on Roy Bentley. <laughs> was he their record goal scorer for a time? Uh, he, he probably was. He, he did play for England a little bit in the early, middle 1950s. How easy was it in those days to follow your team in the media? Were you mainly reliant on the radio and and uh, your dad's newspaper, say? Yes, there, were, there wasn't a lot of local football in the in the daily national newspaper, but um, we relied a lot on sports report at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. That was the main um, source of information on teams and scores and how teams were doing. So you're demobbed in 1960 and you go on to become the first full-time club secretary at Carlisle United. How did that opportunity come about? Um, Interestingly, Towards the end of my um, national service, my wife-to-be, we didn't get married until I came out of the army, but my wife-to-be used to send me the local newspapers. I was in Halifax in the Royal Army Pay Corps. And um, early January 1960, I saw an advert in the local Carlisle newspaper, uh, Carlisle United Football Club, asking for applications for the post of secretary. And the two qualifications that they were asking for were an interest in football and some knowledge of bookkeeping. Um, And I passed on both those two. Um, I'd worked for the four or five years before I went into national service for an accountant in Appleby. And uh, so I was fairly familiar with the work of uh, um, bookkeeping and accountancy. What kind of world were you going into at the time? Did other clubs have full-time club secretaries or was this a new thing? No, most clubs had a full-time secretary. It was a new uh, appointment for Carlisle United. Prior to me joining, they'd had two or three retired directors who were part-timing and doing the work between them. There were two or three of them. And I was the first full-time secretary appointed there. So you were 23 at the time. Was that unusually young to be a club secretary in the football world at that time? Um, Yes, it was. It it was unusual. And at the time, I was the youngest secretary in the Football League. Did that cause you any problems when dealing with your counterparts at other clubs? Uh, No, none at all. I found everybody uh, very helpful. And uh, no, I didn't have any problem. I had more problems looking after my own office and going in on a Monday morning and never having been in an office before of that kind, wondering what everything was, what the various files were. And uh, I spent a few uh, sleepless nights, I think, going through everything and trying to get up to date and up to speed with uh, the various activities that took place. Up until 1958, Division 3 had been divided into Division 3 North and Division 3 South. Looking back at that, as curious as I found that as a kid, to me, looking at it now, it makes so much more sense financially, particularly for clubs like Carlisle and, and say, teams in the West Country, such as Exeter and Torquay. Do you remember anything about Division 3 and Division 4 coming into being? Was there any opposition? towards that happening? No, it it had happened um, just before I joined the club. So when I joined Carlisle, they were in uh, Division 4. I I can understand the 
the arguments where um, some people would say, well, it'd be much better, particularly financially, if you were playing teams in your own part of the country. But the downside to all of that is if you have a, a Division 3 South and a Division 3 North, you reduce the amount of promotion you can have to the higher division. The one thing that has been fairly fundamental to the growth of football in this country during my lifetime has been the amount of promotion that you could get from each division. Most clubs, until at least halfway through the season, have some interest in promotion. 1962, Carlisle make it up to Division 3. They come straight back down, but... A year later, they're back up again. They win the third division championship in 1965. And so begins what is seen as the club's golden era. What do you remember about that period? And when we talk about a golden era, what length of time are we talking about? We had, uh, I think it was 11 years in the second division before we got into the first division in 1974. So. We were a, a fairly steady member of Division Two, which is the championship today. And that was from 1965 to 1974. And so there, are, there is that period where Carlisle are proving themselves a, a solid second division team before winning promotion to the first, as you say, in 1974, I think. Was that under Alan Ashman? Alan Ashman was the manager. Um, in 74, he'd also been the manager earlier when we got promotion from the third to the second division. So he, he took us up from both the third to the second and the second to the first in two different spells. Also a former player, wasn't he, I think, at Carlisle? He was a former player at Carlisle, yes. He'd, uh, he'd been a goal-scoring centre-forward in the early 1950s and he was working locally uh, for one of the directors um, of the club when he was first appointed as manager in the, in the 1960s. Back in those days, as you've just said, you've got a club like Carlisle who have a, a steady eight or nine seasons in, say, in, in this instance, in the second division. And I think in the 80s under Bob Stoko, there was a, a fairly stable period as well in the second division. We're in the 1960s. Your club is in the same division for seven or eight seasons. Does that bring a lot of pressure on a manager at that time or are they given the time to do their job and just gradually build a momentum towards getting the club to where they want to get the club? No, I don't think it was any different then from a manager's point of view to what it is now. Managers tended not to stay a particularly lengthy period at any club as they do today. And the, the manager um, wasn't guaranteed that he would he would stay. Success was um, had to be achieved, otherwise managers were under scrutiny and would have to uh, uh, be replaced. I, I don't think it was any different then from what it is now. Carlisle, um, it, it was a novelty to be as high as this in the football pyramid in those days. It, it was something that the fans had never seen before, any of them. And um, they, they just enjoyed it. And uh, there, there was a, a sort of a homely feel about it. Uh, Carlisle was a homely, prudently run club. And you, I think you would say that it, it was generally punching above its weight. As a club secretary, tell us what that entailed on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, 
it, it's everything other than the direct playing side of the game, looking after uh, the finances, um, looking after the um, staff, um, making sure that the club was observing all the rules and regulations of the football authorities and the government, making sure that the finances were uh, kept prudently, dealing with everything other than what the manager would deal with, which would be the playing side. And going into football at the start of the 60s, we're a few years away from the World Cup being held here. And we're probably also a few years away at that time from the rise of crowd trouble, which plagued the game maybe from the late 60s onwards until the late 80s, early 90s. That's late 50s, early 60s period. What kind of state was English football in at that time? It, it was all right because I think fans accepted uh, what they were given. The, the conditions in the grounds weren't particularly great. Uh, there hadn't been any investment in facilities for uh, many years. Many of the grounds were, were as they had been built many years ago. And uh, so I think the, the, the public were, at that point, prepared to accept what they were given, whereas today that wouldn't be the case. But just around the corner, it wasn't very far before, it wasn't very long before, and there were problems in the grounds, and uh, that led to various other um, uh, restrictions that had to be imposed on clubs. And uh, uh, we find now that the regulation is, is very, very severe compared to what it was in those days. Do you have a theory as to why English football had those problems with, I mean, obviously it's not specific to English football. I mean, if anything, we see it now a lot more on the continent, but why did it begin to be a problem in English football at that particular time? I think it was just a reflection of society generally, a society that was less prepared to accept authority and were... uh, sort of agitating for anything that they wanted. And uh, we got problems in the crowds and uh, troublemakers. It it was a small minority, but it it was um, a place where they could probably seek some kind of anonymity and um, create as much mayhem as they possibly could. And in terms of the standard of the football, I mean, this season and towards the end of last season, we've got this very strange spectacle no fans, and it is leading to very strange results. You know, teams don't have the home advantage anymore. And many journalists are saying this is what football say used to be like in the 50s, early 60s, before tactics really, really evolved. It was kind of end-to-end. There were strange results. Do you see a bit of that? No, I, I, I can't say. I can't say I do. The game itself was a completely different game from what it is now. If you if you watch a, a film of a game in the 1960s compared to today, the actual standard of football, the quality of the of the play, the the, the skill of the players is very very small compared to what it is today. Some players were skillful and were able to dribble well with the ball, and they stood out. But defenders, by and large, were just very strong, rugged players who the the main objective was to get the ball up the field as quick as they could. And some of the tackles that that took place in those days, um, you wouldn't be on the field five minutes if you uh, employed them today. 
So it, 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 it was a completely different game on the field. It, it provided excitement, obviously, but uh, it wasn't as skillful as it is today by a, a long, long way. In some respects, it continued in that vein, really, until, say, just as much as, say, foreigners coming into the game and the game over here becoming more technical pitches, the, the improvement in turf technology has played a huge part in the skill levels we see today, hasn't it? Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest changes that I've seen in my lifetime in football has been the quality of the stadium, including the quality of the pitches. They were just mud heaps by November, December. Uh, if it was a, a wet autumn, the pitches were absolute mud heaps. And that, that was the same right through until the middle 70s, even, even to the end of the 70s. Very few clubs by Easter would have a, a, ground, a ground that they could be proud of. But now most clubs have a, a, ground, a good ground right to the end of the season. And it was um, symptomatic, I think, of the lack of investment in both personnel and in, in uh, facilities. Clubs just didn't think about having to provide funds for a groundsman or even employ a good groundsman. Anybody who would cut the grass um, would be acceptable and uh, um, you, you didn't have the ability to be able to say plan that this close season you would like to do a complete re-turf or a, excavate the entire pitch and relay it and so on. It, it just never happened in those days. Before we go on to that season in Division 1, there's the curious matter of June 72 when Carlisle beat AS Roma 2-1 in the Stadio Olimpico in the much maligned Anglo-Italian Cup. How did Carlisle qualify for that? And what do you recall about the game itself? We were invited. Um, it was a competition that was set up. Um, the um, the organiser was an Italian uh, called Gigi Peronacci. He was um, known by the football authorities in this country. And he arranged with the football authorities in England that there would be a competition in the close season involving um, some English and some Italian clubs. And uh, we were chosen rather than we, we didn't have to qualify or we, we didn't apply. Um, and I think the fact that um, we'd been a, a good second division club for a number of years up near the top of the second division, um, I think um, influenced the decision to invite us. And we were invited to take part and uh, we were unfortunate that we didn't win the tournament. It, we only didn't win it because Blackpool beat um, an Italian team about 10-1 or 10-0 in their final match. And otherwise, we would have got to the final. Do you remember anything about that game in Roma? Um, you mentioned that it was 2-1. It was 3-2, actually. Carlisle won 3-2. I, I remember the game a little bit. It was um, there, there was a reasonably good uh, crowd. Carlisle had a, a full team, their uh, top second division team. We, we put on a very, very spirited performance. And uh, I, th I think we were for good value for our win. And I think the Italians were probably a bit surprised to think that a, an English second division club could um, come to Rome to the Olympic Stadium and uh, beat uh, Roma. But we did, and uh, we went on to play another match down in the south of Italy against Catanzaro, and uh, they were another top team in uh, 
the south of Italy, and we beat them 4-1, and then we had to play the same two teams back over in Carlisle. Was this a tournament that was played in the summer, or was it actually played during the normal football season? Uh, it was played in the summer. It was um, uh, beginning of June. We'd had two or three weeks gap between the end of our domestic season and uh, this tournament, which started at the beginning of June. What expectations did the club have going into that first campaign in Division 1 in 74-75? It, it was an absolutely new experience. I don't think anybody had ever visualised or even dreamt that Carlisle could ever get in the first division, but we did. and. Um, we went into it um, expectantly, I suppose. Um, we didn't do anything spectacular in the transfer market in the close season before we went in. We only signed one player, that was Bobby Parker, the defender from Coventry City. And uh, we paid about £50,000 for him. And he was the only significant outlay in terms of cash that we paid for any acquisition in that close season. We, we went into it with our eyes open, but we uh, we knew we were going to enjoy the experience, but we didn't have any hard and fast ideas that we were going to do particularly well. We, we hoped that we would, and we'll give it every, everything we had and uh, see where it took us. And uh, it set off exceedingly well. We won the first three games. Was that spending in the summer, which was limited to £50,000, was that just Carlisle being prudent and thinking, well, we might not be here long, let's see how this goes, let's not break ourselves financially to be here? Well, we were a club that had always not overspent. I was at Carlisle 18 years, and in 11 of those 18 years, we made a profit on the balance sheet. Um, So... We, we ran the club prudently and we, we didn't spend what we hadn't got and we weren't prepared to put the club into debt. In those days, we were very, very much a trading club. We, we tried to acquire players as cheaply as we could, give them experience and, and make them better players and then possibly move them on to bigger clubs. And we had many players that we, that, that we did that with and Stan Bowles was one of them, uh, Willie Carlin, Ray Train. And you, uh, McElmoyle, a host of them that we, we got very low fees and um, we, we set a budget and, and didn't ever exceed it. And that applied in the first, with the first division season looming. Um, we, we decided that there was a limited amount of money that we were going to be prepared to spend. And that was it. And uh, we thought that the team that had got us out of the second division might be able to perform in the first division. And, uh, we nearly, we nearly did perform. We, we uh, were only just short at the end. Uh, we didn't concede that many goals compared to today. I mean, if you were relegated from the Premier League today, you would uh, I imagine you'd be conceding 70 or 80 goals in the season. And I think we conceded 50-something. When you won your first three games, Bill Shankly, newly retired, he called it the greatest feat in the history of the game. Were there any players in that Carlisle team that you really enjoyed watching? There were a number, but the one that I enjoyed watching most of all, I, I would think I would call him my best Carlisle player in the time that I'd been watching him, was Chris Balderstone. He was a midfield player. Um, we got him um, from Huddersfield Town, where he had played first-team football, but 
not a lot. And he was quite a young player when we got him, and uh, he played a lot of games for Carlisle over a good number of seasons. Um, and he was our star player, really. And his, his one failing was that he didn't have a lot of pace. He was um, just a little bit slower than you would have liked him to have been. And had he had that extra pace, he certainly wouldn't have stayed at Carlisle. He was totally two-footed. He could take penalty kicks with his left or his right foot. He, he was equally deft with, with either. So I would say that he was probably the, the star player. Alan Ashman leaves not long after the club are relegated. When a club loses a manager and begins a search for a new one, is the club secretary involved in any way with that search? Oh, yes, yes, yes. With the board of directors, um, I've been involved in the various discussions on uh, appointments and uh, shortlists and uh, interviews and so on. When Alan left, it was the second season after we came out of the first division. I think he realised that he'd taken the club as far as he could and he didn't want to be there when the club started sliding back. And I think he could see that things were difficult and there was a risk of not being able to do as well as we had done. He decided of his own volition to um, call it a day and so he, he said that he was going to uh, finish and the choice then was fairly straightforward because we appointed um, the coach who'd been the coach since about the middle 1950s and had been with Alan all the time. Alan was Gallagher's manager, Dick Young. And uh, Dick Young took over as, as manager. Um, his stay, he wasn't really in the end put out for it, but uh, he stayed for a year or so. And the, the secretary's position was similar to the chief exec today. Um, in those days, there wasn't there wasn't the title chief exec. But when you'd been at a club for a certain number of years as secretary, you, you got more and more involved in um, all the aspects of the club. And uh, it, it was doing the work that a, a chief exec would do today. In those days, when a club got relegated, was there always that pressure on the manager to bounce back immediately? I think it would vary from club to club. I mean, it, uh, it it would it would be different at Carlisle from what it would be, say, at Manchester United. When Manchester United were relegated, um, when Carlisle were promoted to the first division, I'm sure there was pressure on Tommy Doherty to get them straight back up again. Whereas when Carlisle were relegated, I don't think there'd be the same kind of pressure on Alan Ash to get his team back up into the first division again as long as we could do well and give the fans plenty to uh, keep them happy, um, I, I, th- I think that would be fine. When we first spoke some months ago, you asked me what has to be one of the great football quiz questions, and I didn't know the answer. I'm going to give you the question, and you can give the listeners the answer. If I remember rightly, this applies to league matches only and the question is which club have Carlisle never played in a league game and the answer is Manchester United because Manchester United were relegated the season that Carlisle were promoted to the first division if you remember um, it was Dennis Law who backheeled a goal into the Manchester United net to put them down Carlisle were up in the first division and therefore have never played Manchester United in a league match. 
That is uh, one of the all-time great football quiz questions. I certainly didn't know that until you told me. By now, the mid-70s, you're in your second decade as a club secretary, and you're still going to be doing the job, albeit at a different club, through uh, the first part of the 80s, and we'll come to that shortly. But I want to know, at this stage, 15 years into the job, had the job of club secretary evolved in any way by then? Yes, there was much more scrutiny, much more regulation. There'd been the um, one or two accidents at football grounds. There was the Rangers accident in the early 70s where so many people were killed coming out of a game between Rangers and Celtic. There'd been others, and there was a lot of additional regulation and uh, uh, tests that had to be done annually on all aspects of crowd safety. And uh, so there, there was a lot of extra pressure in making sure that grounds were up to the standard expected and required. And that was one of the, uh, the, the, the big changes, I think. By 77, Carlisle are back in Division 3. A year later, you make the move to Coventry City, then a very forward-thinking First Division club. You move there to be their new club secretary. Jimmy Hill is, of course, their chairman. How did that move come about, and was it difficult for you to leave Carlisle? Um, yes, it was difficult. Um, the, the one season we had in the First Division what um, was a, a little bit of an eye-opener in so much as I, I saw how the bigger clubs operated. It was completely different from how a small club punching above its weight had to operate. And I did get slightly itchy feet, and I thought if an opportunity ever arose, I might be prepared to move from Carlisle, but it would only be to a, a handful of clubs and I'd, I'd picked out a few of the clubs that I thought I might like to work for. Coventry was one of them, Southampton was another, and Ipswich was another. And they're, surprisingly, they're not the big clubs, the Manchesters or the Liverpools or Tottenham's or Arsenal. In 1978, the opportunity arose at Coventry. The Coventry secretary, um, Eddie Plumley had been poached by Elton John to go to Watford, to work with him at Watford. And I knew Eddie quite well, and he rang me and said that there is a job coming up at Coventry City. Would you be interested in it? Uh, he said, I'm, I'm moving on, and if you're interested, um, I'll pass that on. And um, so I thought a little bit about it, and uh, as Coventry had been one of the clubs that uh, I would have been interested in joining, I said yes. And um, I was invited down for a meeting and uh, I was given the job. It, it, it was hardly an interview. It, they, they'd obviously decided that uh, they would invite me and if, if I took it, I would, I would be appointed. So, yes, I, I went to Coventry in uh, April of 1978. I find it very interesting the way you selected clubs that you'd be prepared to work for, that you, you, you thought you'd be a good fit for it. It's reminiscent of when you hear, say, managers looking at their next job and maybe identifying what kind of clubs they want to work for, where that team might be in its development. And three clubs you mentioned there, Southampton, Ipswich and Coventry, as you say, they weren't necessarily the biggest, but they were all 
quite progressive in their own way, weren't they, at that particular time? They, they were, um, each in their own way. Um, um, they, they were more like the, the smaller club, but um, much bigger than Carlisle and much uh, bigger crowds and more potential. But they, they, they weren't the same. I, I don't think that I would have been attracted to Leeds United or to uh, uh, Manchester United or to Liverpool in the same way as I could have been attracted to Coventry or Ipswich or uh, Southampton. Still to come on this week's When Shorts Were Short. It was against the background of that that there was ill feeling within the game. The, the bigger clubs felt that they deserved a bigger share of the revenue that could be generated. And as a result of that, there was talk over a number of years of the possibility of the top divisions breaking away and even creating their own leagues and so on. But the culmination of all of that was the creation of the uh, Premier League in 1992. Gordon Milne is the manager at Coventry when you join. He's more than halfway through a seven-year spell at Highfield Road. What was it like working with him? And does a club secretary always have to have a close working relationship with a manager? I think it is very important that you do have a good working relationship with the manager. I, I think it would create tensions if there wasn't a good working relationship right through. And uh, Gordon Milne was a, an excellent person to work with. If, if you would ask me who I enjoyed working with most of the managers that I've worked with in my career, I, I would say Bob Stoker at Carlisle and Gordon Milne at Coventry. Gordon was certainly... Um, a, a top class man to work with and we got on well and worked well together. In the summer of 81, Dave Sexton arrives. He builds on Gordon Milne's decent work. There's a promising young team coming together at Coventry. Sexton, he was a, a man who had a reputation, deservedly so, as a brilliant coach, but he arrives at Coventry on the back of a, a somewhat chastening end to his time as a Manchester United manager, what was he like to work with? He was a very studious man. Um, he would ask you some very, very deep questions, totally unrelated to football. Uh, how, how do you know that there's a God? <laughs> Things like come out with questions like that um, when, when you were uh, in the office. And uh, it, was, it was a very, very unusual operator, but he was a very, very nice man, an exceptionally nice person. And he was a very good coach as well. Um, he, uh, he stayed at Coventry probably only a year or a year and a half. I think there are, there are clubs for managers. Some managers are, are cut out to be at certain clubs. And uh, it, it may be that uh, Coventry wasn't Dave Sexton's club. It's interesting you do mention he's a, he, he was a nice person because uh, reading a couple of uh, Manchester United books on say Tommy Doherty, uh, Dave Sexton and Ron Atkinson's time as managers there that is what pretty much every person interviewed says about Dave Sexton a really nice guy brilliant coach perhaps not the right fit as a manager for a club like United. Now th this is for me this is really interesting this particular time at Coventry 
And I think we forget just how much of an innovator Jimmy Hill was with everything. All this fancy stuff we see with Sky Football now, Sky Sports, can be traced back to the work that Jimmy Hill was doing with LWT in the late 60s and early 70s. He was also innovating quite a lot at Coventry. What kind of stuff were Coventry doing at that particular time? Um, well, I think you would say that there were brand leaders in, uh, in, in many ways. Coventry had been the first club to uh, create an all-seater stadium. It had been the first club to create a grandstand restaurant where season ticket holders on a Saturday afternoon at 12 o'clock could come and have a, a silver service meal before the match. Um, they the first club to have the modern type of match day programme, the glossy coloured match day programme. Innovators in many, many different ways. A sky blue train to take supporters to away games in the 60s and early 70s when Jimmy was manager. Um, many, many examples of um, innovation that were created when Jimmy was there. Was there ever any opposition from within whenever he came up with one of these ideas? Like, you know, for instance, the first all-seater stadium and, you know, this uh, this sky blue train, etc. Were any of these ideas initially considered just not right for the club? It, it didn't. It never went wrong until the final um, episode, which was the involvement in an American football club. But until that point, I think all the um, initiatives were all accepted. There was scepticism, but there wasn't. There was never any any dissent from within. And um, I think the fans sometimes thought that the money possibly could be used for better purposes than um, than some of the initiatives. But generally, I think the directors and uh, Jimmy were on the same wavelength. It only went wrong at the end when uh, Jimmy persuaded the board at Coventry to invest money in an American. Um, football club and it ended in disaster with uh, both Coventry City and Jimmy losing their investments. It, that was the point where uh, Jimmy had to sort of reluctantly sever his uh, connections with the club. Was this before the Saudi Arabia football school? Uh, no, it, it was um, Jimmy was organising the Saudi Arabia um, coaching schools in the uh, 70s and it was the, the 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 money that jimmy had generated from that initiative that he then invested in american football initially in detroit express in detroit and um, persuaded Coventry city to become investors as well and then when it didn't work out in detroit we went on to um, washington and uh, we uh, became Equal well, third partners in Washington diplomats. Jimmy was one partner, Coventry City another, and an American had the third share. It was from Washington that the thing finally ended, and uh, that was uh, Jimmy's link with Coventry finished as well. Detroit Express, they were relatively high profile, weren't they, at the time? Because they had Trevor Francis for a summer, if I remember rightly. They they did, and I think uh, I, I think that was probably. Uh, Jimmy's connection with uh, Trevor Francis. I know they were they were friendly, and he, he probably w- was able to persuade uh, Trevor to go there and sign for for Detroit. Yes. How acrimonious was it at the end between the club and Jimmy Hill? Did Jimmy Hill leave quietly, or was there an attempt on his part to stand his ground? 
No, I think I think Jimmy accepted that uh, things hadn't worked out, and uh, in the end, no, there there was there, there wasn't any real animosity. No, he uh, he decided that it was right that he should go, and uh, and he he left the club, and uh, uh, he, he left a legacy. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it, and uh, he was very well thought of in the city of Coventry uh, for many many years. He, it, it was Jimmy Hill that had to put the club back on the map right through from the 1960s when he was the manager through to the um, middle 1980s when he finally left. I remember when we spoke previously, I asked you this and you'd never heard this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it just for the benefit of listeners. I remember reading as a kid that the acrimony between the club and Jimmy Hill was so bad at one point that Coventry were given serious consideration to even changing their colours just to put distance between themselves and Jimmy Hill. I take it from our previous conversation that that was just a tabloid creation. I'd never heard of that, so I think uh, you're right in taking that uh, view. It's something that I had never, ever heard. After Jimmy Hill goes, how much longer are you at Coventry for? Is it a year or a couple of years? No, no, I went more or less the same time. I left in 74. 84, would it be? 1984. I'd been there six years. A big decision for you to to leave Coventry? I hadn't had any previous um, inclinations to want to move. Um, I hadn't had any opportunity to move, but out of the blue came um, an inquiry from a member of the Football League board to ask if I would be interested in a position at the Football League. The Deputy Secretary was retiring later in the year and would I be interested in succeeding him as Deputy Secretary? And I said, well, you know, can I? I'd never thought of that, but I asked if I could have a little bit of time to think about it. And I uh, thought, well, maybe a change of direction. Would I'd done 18 years at Carlisle and six at Coventry, 24 years. The first 24 years of my career have been at two clubs. And I uh, thought maybe it would be the right time to go on to the opposite side of the fence and uh, start viewing it from the other side. And so I, I said I would be interested. And uh, I was invited for an interview and eventually offered the job. And you're going to the Football League at a difficult time, perhaps. I mean, we've touched on hooliganism earlier, but also situations which are barely imaginable now. The TV strike of 85, 86, where there was no football for the first half of that season. What do you remember about that? Well, I wasn't particularly involved with the commercial side of the Football League. Initially, in my first year or two, I was more involved in the administration. Uh, we had a commercial department which uh, had a, a commercial director and uh, a good number of staff. And so my involvement on the commercial side wasn't quite as much as it might have been if I'd still been at a club, for example. But I, I, I can't comment specifically on the uh, the television display. I, I remember it, but I, I, I wasn't involved particularly. One of the things that really changed football in that mid-80s period was the introduction of the playoffs, which was such an unusual idea 
really, uh, for English football. I think it was happening in a few other countries. But to see what the playoffs have become now, how, how big those games have become, is quite incredible because they had a very different start. I think the old first division, the third from bottom team, would play the third team in the old second division as a, as a playoff. Do you remember anything about that decision to bring in playoffs? Yes, f- football at that point was going through the doldrums a bit. Interest in the game was very low for a variety of reasons, but probably the largest one was the uh, the hooliganism and bad behaviour in the grounds. You've you got situations where first division games in the mid-1980s were attracting only 10,000 people. Can you imagine today um, the Premier League clubs only getting 10,000 people at the matches. It was unheard of. But anyway, it had dropped to an alarmingly low level and something had to be done to try to create more interest in the game for the spectators. And one of the things that was um, brought forward was the possibility of introducing the playoffs. And the purpose of the playoffs was to enable more interest for more clubs and therefore more spectators right throughout the season. And when you start looking at the playoff positions, which go down to either seventh or eighth position in the table, it means that that number of clubs right through till generally March or April still have an interest in promotion that season. So that creates interest for the fans. And uh, it it was born out of those kind of uh, thoughts. And I think it came, did come from America. And I, th- I think it had been happening in America. And um, it, it came here and it, it's been, well, it, it's now integral to the uh, organisation of the uh, competition. 1989, Graham Kelly leaves the Football League to take over as chief executive of the FA. You're then appointed Football League secretary. Unbeknown to you, you will be the last Football League secretary to preside over all 92 teams. What were your immediate challenges on taking on that role? It it was a time when there was a lot of anxiety amongst the member clubs. For for some considerable time, the greed is good philosophy uh, had been thriving and, and, and being encouraged. In my earlier times in football, the big clubs supported the lesser clubs by way of a a gate-sharing arrangement. And when a small club went to play against a big club on the big club's ground, um, the the small club would pick up something like 20% of the net gate receipts. And in that way, the bigger clubs were sponsoring or supporting the the smaller clubs. And by the mid-'80s, that kind of arrangement had been discontinued the big clubs were thinking, well, we need to be keeping our own money. We can't be affording to give so much of our income away to the smaller clubs. So it was against the background of that that there was ill feeling within the game. The, the bigger clubs felt that they deserved a bigger share of the revenue that could be generated. And as a result of that, there was talk over a number of years of the possibility of the top divisions breaking away and even creating their own leagues and so on. The culmination of all of that was the creation of the uh, Premier League in 1992. 
we'd had a, a period in the 80s, certainly, where there'd been regular speculation of a, a breakaway Super League, but it was something that never seemed to happen. Do you think that the Football League at any point were maybe thinking, as it hadn't happened yet, they were maybe thinking, we're, we're okay here, all that breakaway talk has gone quiet, or did you have the sense that something was finally going to happen? Yes, I think there was always a feeling that it was likely to happen at some point. I don't think anybody ever knew when it would happen, but uh, it would happen in due course. And uh, uh, as it happened, it, the due course was in 1992. It had been building up for a number of years, but uh, eventually it did happen. I don't think it caught us by surprise. I, I think possibly in, in the end, I, I think the, the timing of it possibly did catch us a little bit by surprise when probably we're aware that it was likely to happen, but it maybe did happen in the end rather more suddenly than we'd anticipated, but um, um, I, I'm not sure on that, possibly. Before we go back to that 91-92 uh, formation of the Premier League, we're just going to have a slight diversion. A clip that's done the rounds for the last year, certainly not a big deal at the time, but because of this particular man's baffling rise to the position of ruling over the world's most powerful country until a couple of weeks ago, there's that situation where you accompany Saint and Greavesy uh, to New York in late 91. They're out there filming a feature for the 94 World Cup, I think the draw for the qualifiers was being in, uh, being made that weekend in New York. And you end up appearing with both Saint and Greavesy and Donald Trump, who ended up carrying out the draw for the League Cup in a boardroom at the top of Manhattan's 58-story Trump Tower. All of that is strange. How did that come about? Well, the uh, the draws for the um, uh, League Cup, the, it, it was the Rumbles Cup in that year, uh, were being done on... Um, the Saint and Greavesy show on a Saturday lunchtime. And the draw was due to be made on a certain Saturday. And ITV said that the Saint and Greavesy show that Saturday was being uh, conducted in New York. And the only way we could do the draw was if we went to New York with them. We said, well, that sounds a good idea. And um, off we went to New York and uh, did the draw in Trump Town. Did Donald Trump actually know what was going on? Um, possibly not. Right. But he pretended that he did. And he, he was quite a gentleman. He was very polite, very friendly, and uh, very cordial. There was, there was no indication at that point of, as to the sort of type of man that he might develop in, into in the future. He was, he was a perfect gentleman. So you come back from New York and we're about six months away from the Premier League happening. At that point in your thinking, was there anything that the Football League could do to avert this breakaway or were you resigned to it happening? No, I think we were resigned to it happening. Um, I don't think there was any any way of, uh, of, of changing it. I think uh, it, it had been determined that that was going to happen so it, it was just planning, see, seeing what could be done to make the best of a, a bad job because um, it, it was a bad job as far as the uh, majority of the football league clubs were concerned. They didn't uh, they didn't look forward to the day when they would be uh, without their uh, top division. But um, 
they'd, uh, they'd accepted that it was inevitable and so they'd got to try and make the best of it. Now presiding over a 72-club football league, what were the challenges you faced in that early period following the inception of the Premier League? I suppose the, the, the main challenge was to ensure that we were uh, vibrant enough and, and uh, could generate enough um, influence and uh, finance to keep the Football League of 72 clubs um, running. There was, there was an initial concern that um, we might find it difficult to be able to get television deals and sponsorship deals because they would be uh, directed towards the uh, the Premier League. But um, in the end, I mean, it worked out and uh, I think that, uh, it, it worked fairly satisfactorily. Now, the reason I first contacted you, and we, we, we spoke about this before, but you were the guy that I was told I needed to speak to because I've, I've long had this interest. The League Championship Trophy, which is now given to the winners of the championship, and uh, it's nicknamed the Lady. I've always thought it our most beautiful trophy. And for me, I, I still can't get my head around that even in the 80s, there was a brief period where the Lady was sidelined by the Canon League Trophy, I think, for uh, two or three seasons, which looked more like a Player of the Month award. Uh, for me, the League Championship Trophy is such a stunning trophy. And, you know, if I can ever get Rick Parry to talk to me about it, I I'd love to get him on the show because I'm very curious. As we're going into the spring of 93, and that first ever Premier League title race is concluding. You've got United fending off Villa and Norwich. I remember distinctly that no one still knew what trophy that team was going to be presented with. And I remember reading about that somewhere. So it was clear that it wasn't going to be the lady. The lady was staying with the Football League. And suddenly the Premier League unveiled this new trophy, which looks like a cheap version of the European Cup with a crown on it. And almost 30 years later, I've not changed my mind. Was there any negotiating on the league championship trophy or it was just a given that that was staying with the football league? I think it was just a given. Um, there was never, to my knowledge, any discussion whatsoever. I think it would have been a final insult if the uh, Premier League had said that they would like to take the, uh, the, the championship trophy from us. I, I don't think there was any possibility of that ever happening. How much longer were you at the Football League for? I retired in 2001, so I've been retired 20 years. So you had a long career then as a football administrator. I mean, that's that's 40 plus years. Just give us a handful of your best memories of that time to, to wrap up this interview. Best memories, early years at Carlisle, getting promotion uh, three times, getting to the first division with Carlisle joining Coventry City uh, at a very exciting time in their history, um, becoming involved in quite a few of the innovations that um, they were noted for, then finishing off at the Football League, looking at things from a completely different perspective, uh, from the other side of the fence completely, ensuring that uh, clubs were observing the rules and regulations that when you're on the other side of the fence, you're seeing if there's any uh, ways that you can avoid some of them. And uh, so all in all, a, a, a very, very interesting career. 
and I'm still involved. Uh, even, even for in the 20 years I've been retired, I've been working as a consultant uh, for both the Football League and the Premier League. For the last 11 years, I've been um, honorary president of Carlisle United, so I'm still involved after 60, 61 years. Thank you to David Dent for his time. There'll be a few links on the show notes relating to some of the topics discussed in this episode, including links to some First Division action featuring Carlisle during the 74-75 season. I'll also include some shaky footage of Trevor Francis scoring in an NASL shootout for the Detroit Express, just because the typical for the time American commentary is so well American. It's worth a watch. You'll know what I mean when you see it. Lastly, I can't not post a link to the draw for the fifth round of the Rumbelows Cup from December 91 featuring David, a certain Donald Trump and St. Greavesy in New York. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links, reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast store and help me to keep the show going the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short if you want to join the group page please do all my work can be found at danielruiztizen.com appreciate your time the artwork is by tom hadfield the music is 80 synth pop by toto cyberspace i've been daniel ruiz tyson this has been when shorts were short If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm